Hello again my friends and welcome to Gardo Goes Geek. I'm your host Gardo and today I wanted to discuss the trend I've noticed in adult focused geek media to be a bit more graphic in nature and why maybe I think that might not always be a good thing. Now, uh, what do I mean by the graphic nature of more adult-focused media? Well, there seems to be, especially in animation, but it seems to be a turn that I'm a trend that I've noticed a lot, um, especially over the last sort of twenty years. Um, for things to try and push the limit. Um, the example I'm going to go for is comic books, as a good example, to start with. Um, comic books are, are generally defined by their ages. Um, so you have the Golden Age, which is the the Golden Age of superhero comics. Um, that covers all of your World War era characters. The first appearances of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, um, the original Justice, uh, Justice Society, as they're now called. Um, with Flash, Green Lantern, over at DC. And then at Marvel, you had their characters like uh, the Human Torch, uh, Namor the Submariner, and the Captain America comics um, during World War II. The Golden Age was generally kind of ended with uh, McCarthyism, uh, one of the side effects of the McCarthyist, um, McCarthy era, and the effect he had on media was that um, comic book superheroes were generally seen as a, as a negative. So the superheroes did kind of fade away. Batman, Superman and Captain America stayed around, as did Wonder Woman. Uh, but most of the others kind of disappeared. And their stories tended to become less grand superhero adventures and more kind of middling things. Um, more funny stories. You also started to get at that point a lot of like the, the silly character comics. Um, so a lot of animal-based characters. Um, romance comics were a big thing in this era as well. This changed with the Silver Age. Now the Silver Age, when it starts and ends, is generally in flux. Um... The earliest point you could argue it started is with the beginning of the publication of the second version of The Flash, the Barry Allen version of The Flash, uh, familiar to audiences from um, CW's The Flash series, and obviously it's the same version of The Flash that appears, well, not the same version of The Flash, but it's Barry Allen who is The Flash in the DC Extended Universe. Uh, Flash debuted in 1955, I believe. However, the Silver Age is generally considered to have really come on with the superhero, superhuman resurgence that you got uh, in sort of the early 60s, where DC started publishing not just The Flash, but they also brought back newer versions of old characters. So you had the Hal Jordan version of Green Lantern, they brought back Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman um, out of retirement, they brought in new characters like 
uh, Aquaman. In fact, I'm not sure Aquaman was new. I think he had appeared previously, but they brought him back. Um, and then they eventually teamed them all up with the Justice League, which then inspired Marvel Comics, um, who had just started working back on superhero stuff, to print their new their first superheroes team, which was the Fantastic Four, which then led to the appearances of Thor, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, um, the X-Men, Daredevil, all these big names which are still recognised today. The Silver Age is generally accepted to have ended sort of early 70s. Um, again, the the period when it ends is generally debated. Um, some people say it happened when Stanley stopped writing Fantastic Four and Spider-Man on a regular basis. Some people say it definitely ended um, with the, the storyline the night Gwen Stacy died. Um, which is where Spider-Man's girlfriend Gwen Stacy was killed by the Green Goblin, um, which I think was the first major example of a, a major character death um, that not only occurred, but stuck um, for a long time in the comics. Um, so obviously that then led to the Bronze Age of comics. The Bronze Age of comics is generally accepted to have ended sort of in 1985 when DC published their... Crisis on Infinite Earths event uh, in an effort to kind of streamline their continuity. Um, and that then led through the 1980s into the 90s, you know, the latter half of the 80s and into the 90s with what is called the Dark Age of Comics. Now, the Dark Age of Comics were generally typified by having darker tones to the storytelling um it was more often that you'd see characters um violently injured you'd see the relaxing of the comic code meant that you'd see characters bleed or get violent seriously injured uh, possibly maimed you started to have more storylines that explored um issues like drug addiction or other things like that but in a more serious way um not just as a a sort of a moral message in the way that some stories had done previously. Um, it was also where you got um, two comics, well, three comics I can think of, that kind of exemplify the start of the Dark Age of comics. Um, the first one is the Batman story by Alan Moore called The Killing Joke. Uh, the Killing Joke is a very, very famous, one of the Joker's most famous stories. Um, it features the Joker shooting um, Batgirl, um, point blank, and then stripping her naked while she's still lying injured, photographing her. Um, it's, there's implied sexual assault. Um, and then those pictures are used to try and torment um, Commissioner Gordon to make him go mad and to kill the Joker because um, Joker was trying to prove to Batman that one bad day is all it would take to tip someone over the edge. Um, so yeah, it is one of one of Joker's most famous and most referenced stories. Um, but obviously contained very violent material. Um, the And very graphic material. Like I said, the... the I say implied sexual assault, but it's it's pretty much all but stated in in the text of the 
the book that, um, yeah, Joker sexually assaulted Batgirl. I mean, the pictures of her when she's lying there bleeding from a shot to her spine are of her naked, <laughs> and unnecessarily so, in my opinion. I don't think it's a particularly good story. Alan Moore has said he regretted writing the story. Um, so, I mean, Alan Moore is known for some quite graphic material anyway. Um, I mean, in the early 80s, he'd been involved in some very dark British comics. Um, the reboot of Marvel Man, which was um, the British version of the character of Shazam. Or Captain Marvel from the original Fawcett comics had had a, an 80s revival in Britain um, that Alan Moore had worked on and made very graphic. Um, I still need to read the, the full Marvel Man run. The bits I have read are... They are they're very bleak. <laughs> he also obviously wrote V for Vendetta and another comic that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, the second comic that kind of typifies this age is Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Um, the Dark Knight Returns is story of an older Bruce Wayne um, coming back into a a very media driven um, world the America has kind of become typified with um, celebrity and meaningless products there was a lot of political commentary in it some of which was more obvious than others and as the sequels to it have been produced has become a lot stranger Frank Miller used to be good but he is not anymore um, this is probably his best work although some people would argue Sin City personally I prefer The Dark Knight Returns um, but it does a very good job of bringing Batman back it's again one of the it's a subversion of a lot of what you would expect from Batman um, but also a very very reaffirming of who Batman is at the same time. Um, a lot of people sort of take it as darker than it actually is. There is a fight at the end between Batman and Superman, which is very often talked about and has obviously inspired a lot of things, including the Batman versus Superman movie. Um, um, there's talk of Batman using guns, but the... Batman also does say in the comic very explicitly that he, not to use guns. The guns are the weapons of the enemy. Um, so it's it holds a weird place in pop culture where I think people kind of remember the wrong things from it. Um, and then finally, the third major dark comic of this era was produced. It was published by DC. Um but it's outside of the DC universe, and that is the story Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Now, Watchmen is an amazing story. Um, it subverts a lot of superhero tropes. It presents the superheroes as mainly masked adventurers without powers, um, but in a very real world where... Things are different. Things are more realistic and more graphic than your standard superhero fare. 
there is one actual superhuman in the comic, which is the character of Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan is shown as being so aloof and separate from humanity, just purely by the nature of his powers. Like, for example, he sees all of time happening at once. Um, that he's very detached from humanity, despite his politicization by the American government and his use in uh, Vietnam to allow the American government to win the Vietnam War. So... But Watchmen does have some, you know, some very graphic stuff in it. It features um, sex and nudity, which not unheard of for comic books, but definitely uncommon, especially in the 80s. Um, there's some quite graphic violence. Um, there's even, I think, some swearing. Uh, not much. I think most of it is still edited or censored in the text, bizarrely. <laughs> Like yes, you can see a character's boob, or you can see um, you know discussions of a sexual nature, or uh, you can see characters having their heads blown up, but you can't see uh, you know God forbid someone says you know a swear word, someone God forbid someone says. Um. So yeah. Now. Obviously, comic books are not all of geek media, but the the general consensus was that sort of in the dark age of comics, that the comic audience was no longer kids, and comics were now being collected. Um, I mean, the reason there's a lot of Golden Age and Silver Age comics fetch such a high price nowadays for mint condition ones is because they were pulped. They were, you know, the definition of pulp fiction is story that's that are meant to be easily consumable um, and disposable after they've been read. And the early comic books were pulp fiction. They were written for kids. It was expected kids would read them, get a good adventure, you know, good good way to spend a dime or, you know, how much, because comics didn't cost a lot. Um, and then, yeah, it'd probably end up in the trash. It was very rare that they'd be kept and looked after or, uh, you know, be kept in mint condition especially, which is why you read stories of things like Action Comics number 1 selling for, you know, $25 million. But by the dark age of comics, I think we it was no longer expected that kids were the ones reading comics. I mean, most of the people who were writing comics at that point are people who had been kids reading comics and had grown up with these characters and were still reading them, and now they got the chance to write those characters as well. And so they wanted those characters to grow up as well. So the characters started facing more adult situations. And, th you know, that makes sense. That's perfectly fine. Um, but when it does start with a stories of a darker, more graphic nature... It can be bizarre. I mean, Watchmen originally was planned by Alan Moore to incorporate a lot of the uh, Charlton Comics characters that DC had recently acquired. Um, the most famous of those characters is probably... Well, actually, there's a few now, because a few more of them have been turned to movies. I would say The Question is probably the most famous. He was a, a 
character with a blank face uh, in a pinstripe suit and a bowler hat. And he was quite a prominent supporting character in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon series in the 90s. Uh, sorry, in the early 2000s. Um, so he's one of the better known ones. He was the inspiration. For, his character was later turned to Rorschach. Um, the character of Peacemaker, uh, played by John Cena in the current Suicide Squad, the one that's currently out in cinemas now, um, that was the character that became the comedian. Um, Dr. Manhattan was a character called Captain Atom. Uh, Silk Spectre was a character called Nightshade, I believe. Um... Night Owl was the character of Blue Beetle, um, who is a fairly popular comic character. Um, I think he, the newest version of Blue Beetle, not the version that was going to be used in this story, but the one who succeeded him, was a character in the Injustice 2 fighting game. Um, I've forgotten the name of the other one now. There's only six people in Watchmen. Um... Ozymandias. I can't remember the name of the original Charlton character that inspired Ozymandias. Um, but yeah, Alan Moore was originally going to do the story with those six ca six characters, uh, characters that he was familiar with, um, before DC said, no, we want to do our own things with those characters. Um, so Alan Moore created his own instead. And that's fine. I, I think stories, I, I'm fine with characters growing and evolving. And I don't want to say that I'm a prude by any means. I'm I'm fine with graphic content, violent content. But I do think there's a place for it. And I do think, for example, a character who does still appeal to children, um, for example, like Spider-Man, doesn't need to be involved in graphic stories all the time. Same with a character like Batman. Uh, Dark Knight Returns, for example, helps that it's out of continuity. But the killing joke isn't. Um, and it's for a character for someone who likes Batman If it, you know you could get kids who like Batman and the Joker and they'll read that story as their first story um, I had to tell one of the local librarians when the graphic novel section were being kept in the kids library and I read a particular story there called The Evil That Men Do a Spider-Man Black Cat miniseries written by Kevin Smith um, the director behind Clerks and uh, Dogma. And it's a good story. It is, it is a very good story. But it involves a heroin trafficker. And during the story, Black Cat is raped. Which, I mean, the tropes of horrible violence having, happening to female characters is a completely different discussion. Um, but... Yeah, the fact that it was in the children's section because people saw Spider-Man on the cover and thought, oh, it's Spider-Man. Kids want to read Spider-Man. I dread to think some kid reading that as their first, first Spider-Man comic. And I think, I think there is call to be very, very careful about certain characters. And the, the trend throughout the dark age of comics, right through to the modern day with comics, has always been that Things are a bit more graphic. Not necessarily to the extent they were in the Dark Age of Comics. Some of the early... Some of the stories, especially in the 90s, were exceedingly violent. Um, there were a lot of... 
very violent characters introduced under Image Comics, for example. Um, most of them hadn't lasted to the modern day because the stories they were in were bloody terrible. Um, but, for example, one of the most prominent is Spawn. Spawn is a very violent comic book. It's it's not one you'd want to see a kid read. Um, so I'm kind of glad that was done with an original character um, rather than doing it with a character, say, like Spider-Man or Venom, for example. But, yes. Um, so comics have generally shifted towards sort of an older teen, adult-focused audience rather than specifically a kid audience there are still comics that are especially for children but what we're getting now especially as more comic properties are being turned to films and television series is there seems to be a very clear distinction between trying to make now that marvel have especially dominated the film and television market with their marvel cinematic universe to try and make things darker and different to that. And one of the ways that's happening is a lot of the more um, graphic indulgence of some of those comics is being used in television series and animated series. Now, a prominent example of that would be the stories of... Well, I can think of two prominent examples, specifically to keep it comic book related. Um, and that would be the series of The Boys and the series of Invincible, um, both produced by Amazon Prime. Or produced in part by Amazon Prime. Now, Invincible is an animated series. Um, I've so far only seen a couple of episodes. Uh, I was hoping to try and watch it all before this, um, after having seen more of it when it was released uh, but I've simply run out of time and I don't want to let my schedule down uh, but it is graphic now in Invincible was released under Image Comics it was written by Robert Kirkman Robert Kirkman is the same person who wrote The Walking Dead but he has worked in superhero comics as well um, and it tells a very good story it's got a world of its own superheroes um it the main focus is on this young teen hero, but his father is the character of Omni-Man. Omni-Man is essentially a, a Superman pastiche. Um, but he's also, I believe, the advanced scout for the alien empire that he hails from. As a result, during the series, he attacks and kills a lot of other heroes. Um, the end of the first episode involves him taking down uh, seven other characters who are basically pastiches of the Justice League. Like there's Red Rush, who is based on The Flash. There's Green Ghost, who is based on Green Lantern. Uh, War Woman, Wonder Woman, uh, Darkwing, Batman, etc. And he takes them down in graphic fashion. And I don't think, I, I, I mean, I haven't read the comic, so I don't know how graphic it is in the comic, but there's a lot of lingering shots of parts of people. Like, as people are ripped in half and have their heads exploded and all sorts. And it's, it's 
it's quite gut-wrenching to watch, to be honest, even though it's animation. Because um, for all other extents, Invincible looks like, you know, like the old Saturday morning superhero cartoons that we grew up with, like X-Men, Batman, Justice League. It looks like one of those. But it's not. It's very, very graphic. Um... And obviously, it's it's done in service to the story. But I wonder maybe if it was a bit overdone. Now, not having seen the comic, I can't comment on that too much. Um, but I do think maybe it was a bit overdone. I do think a lot more... Of, I think sometimes the violence can be better when it is implied. There's a lot of... I mean, this is especially true from a lot of old horror films. Um... There's a lot of the original horror films where violence is minor, more minor than we remember, or implied. And then the sequels go for the more graphic violence. Um, a good example is... A good non-horror example of implied violence being done very, very well is in Reservoir Dogs, where I've forgotten the name of the character, has his ear cut off. Now, you never see the ear being cut off. The camera actually pulls away, and you hear the reaction, and it's implied, and you will wince at that scene the first time you watch it. Like, Ugh! And then it turns back, and you see the aftermath of it. But you don't see the actual slicing of the blade um psycho again is a very classic example of um, implied violence you never see the knife make contact with uh janet lee i believe it is in the shower um you never you never see the knife penetrate her flesh at all but you think you do because of how it works um because of how the film works now one of my favorite examples from a horror standpoint is saw the Saw sequels are especially known for very, very graphic violence. Um, some of which can be very, very stomach-churning. There's a lot of gore. Um, but if you go back and watch the first film, there's very, very little gore in it. Um, I mean, there's the big pool of blood on the floor of the bathroom. And... I think there's some brief shots towards the end when Carrie Elwes' character cuts his foot off. Um, but I don't think you ever see the blade slicing through his foot. You just see the blood splashing on his face. Um, when Ken Leung's character is caught with the shotgun trap, I don't think you even see him get shot. I don't think you even see him die. Um, the character Amanda who cuts into the, uh, the man's stomach. I don't think you see her rooting around in the stomach. You see her, the shot is focused on her face. So despite the fact that there is very much implied gore and horror, you don't see it in the film. But from the second film, the gore is much more graphic and much more front and centre. But due to the nature of the first film, how it was shot, the fact it was very, very low budget, it's all implied. And I think it does the film a better service that way. Um, now, the second property, The Boys, I have read the comics. And I've currently seen a season and a half 
Uh, I do need to finish season two. I was watching it with my partner and I didn't want to uh, get too far ahead of her. Um, we just haven't had a chance to watch the remaining episodes. So, but The Boys itself was, again, it was started by Garth Ennis, who is one of the more graphic names in uh, comics, but he specifically writes adult-focused comics. Um and his story of the boys was again designed as a superhero deconstruction. Um, the superheroes of this world, the seven, are very clearly based on established superhero tropes. For example, the character of Homelander being based on Superman. Now, it's very good. And the, the idea is these superheroes are obsessed with the cult of celebrity. And all the things that we sort of read about in superhero comics, like these alien invasions and stuff, are not quite... There's there's more to it un, underneath than what we expect. And the boys are the ones there. They're a CIA group. And their job is to go in when the superheroes mess up and teach them a lesson. Now, for starters, in the comic series of the boys, there are way more superheroes way more um and the boys themselves are power they have powers as well um the point being so that they can go toe to toe with the superheroes in a fight if they need to and when we are introduced to the boys in the comic they're already pretty established um the character of uh, the female is you know that some of the, I believe they adapted the scene for season two. She breaks into a, like a gang member's house and rips one of their faces off, and there's a lot of blood and quite graphic violence. Um, and I think it was framed pretty much as it was in the show, so it was sort of off camera, but you saw most of it. Uh, you saw like the aftermath and the the impact of it. Um, but the boys comic does go to some some rather graphic lengths that I don't think the show will. Um, I'd be very interested if it does. For example, in the there's one particular limited series of the comics, uh, which forms volume five, and it's called Herogasm. And the idea behind Herogasm is that uh all the you know to the to the public they say all the superheroes having to go into space to fight this um alien invasion um and so you think okay that, that's what they're going to do instead they all fly to an uh, like a paradise island that's been hired out for them by the company who promotes the superheroes um and it's basically a hedonistic weekend retreat so lots of graphic nudity, lots of sexual situations. Um, but more than that, some very, very questionable behaviour. Um, like, at one point, several superheroes are in the basement sharing different drugs. And it's like whoever has the weirdest drug wins. And one guy is smoking... heroin or something but what he's mixed it with is ground up aborted fetuses which is 
disgusting, <laughs> I think. Um, it, it is. It's like, that's just one where you kind of twist your head like, what? Um, and so there's a lot of graphic lengths that the boys goes to in the comics. I don't think Herogasm will ever be adapted into the series, to be honest. Um, for starters, I think the world of the series of the boys is constructed very, very differently to the comic universe. So I don't think that would be something that would be done anyway. Um, but even if it did, it's bizarre. And it's like these big superhero team-up events. This is how they explain where they've all gone. And they have this weekend, like this retreat, like once, a, once or twice a year. Um, and occasionally when superheroes die in these big crossover events, it's usually because of some accident that's happened at the retreat. Like I think they said one superhero that died a few years ago, um, it was because he'd like choked in the pool or something or, or choked over a, a bad drug overdose or, or some, something like that. It's very bizarre. Um, and there's also like sex awards at the end of the, at the end of the retreat, like several of the characters are crowned like, uh, you know, best member of an orgy or something like that. And it's, yeah, it's, it is bizarre. And I don't think it's ever going to make its way onto the television. And to be honest, I'm kind of glad of that. <laughs> Uh, you know, again, not that I'm a prude. I'm, I'm fine with sexual content. And I think in the comics it kind of works because in the comics these superheroes are all assholes. We are not supposed to like a single one of them. Um, whereas in the show, I think they're trying to make more of them not necessarily sympathetic, but a bit more relatable as characters. Um, especially Queen Maeve. So, we'll see. I mean, this this has also got me wondering how they're going to end the series of the boys because the the ending of the series in the comics was it was it was very definitive. Put it that way. Now, it's not a bad thing, I think, to have such graphic content and in fact with things like the boys and invincible i'm more willing to forgive it because these are characters created to tell that story um you know i'm I'm happier with a story like the boys exploring or, or invincible happening exploring the idea of what if superman but evil rather than i am say superman turning evil um i know that has been done um, for example, the video game Injustice. And Injustice was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the story. I especially enjoyed the comics leading up to the story. And explaining how Superman took over the world. And kind of sort of inspired by the whole Joker's one bad day thing. Uh, for people who don't know the story of Injustice, Superman takes over the world and takes a more hardline approach on villains because he blames Batman for letting the Joker live so many times, because Joker used Scarecrow's fear gas to make Superman think he was fighting Doomsday when he was actually fighting Lois Lane, 
So Superman killed his wife, who was pregnant as well, I believe. And as she died, a bomb linked to a heart monitor that she was wearing blew up and destroyed Metropolis in a nuclear explosion. So, yeah, it's a very dark storyline. Um, and I think it's done very well. I like the fact that it's an alternate universe. I think I'm willing to accept it as an alternate universe story. And as one that was marketed to adults. Like I said, it was a fighting game. It was done by NetherRealm Studios, who were the same studio behind Mortal Kombat. It was definitely marketed towards teens and adults. Um... So obviously I've discussed the comics, but there's there's way more examples of this. Um, where I'll go more into what I mean by the sort of the graphic indulgence. So I've spoken on uh, superhero media, superhero comics especially. Um, and I might come back and cover some, some other things like the Snyder Cut and um, Logan, Deadpool, etc. But a step outside of superhero, um, there are more comic books... Um, that are designed for adult audiences. Um, two prominent examples I can think of are um, The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead is specifically designed as a zombie-focused comic. Um, it's obviously been adapted into the series by AMC. Um, the series is good. Um, the series keeps the same tone as the comic. In fact, um, at one point, the Walking Dead wikia had a list of events that so far hadn't been adapted into the television show um, based on roughly where the television sh show was in terms of the overarching storyline with where what had happened in those comics at that equivalent point in the storyline. So a list of moments that hadn't been adapted, possibly for being too graphic... Um, eventually, I think, though, most of those moments did make it in in some way or another. Um, there was uh, moments such as uh, Rick Grimes, the protagonist, um, killing a spy for another faction. Um, there was the a, ch a child that kills their younger sibling and then has to be executed by another member of the group. Um, that was adapted, but it was adapted seasons later than uh, where the equivalent storyline took place in the comics. Um, one character's suicide by zombie um, was kept. I think the only thing I don't think was adapted was the rape of the character Michonne um, by the governor. Now, I may be wrong about that, uh, but I did watch the governor arc, and I don't think that was in it um whether it appeared later on with another character i don't know i kind of hope it didn't um again going back to the whole idea of uh you know the torture and rape of women as a, a plot device i don't think it's a a great one so i don't think uh it necessarily needs to be in there um but i think most of the graphic violent moments ended up happening and they uh, the way Robert Kirkman wrote them in the book um, and the way the series presents them is very, very similar. They are presented as humanity is the real monsters kind of thing. Um, you know, despite the fact the zombies are the monsters. <laughs> it's like, yeah, hum humans are monstrous to each other when they want to be. Which is 
great. I think that's a really good way of doing the story. And it's done justice. So Walking Dead is very clearly marketed towards a, a teen adult audience in the comic. And I think um, in roughly the series, the, the audience is geared towards, despite the, the very heavy focus on the live action of making it, you know, sticking to that graphic nature of the comic. Which I think is great. So I think that's fully justified in what it does. Um, another example I can think of from comics is um, a graphic novel series I'm a big fan of called Sunstone. Um, which is a story about um, a couple involved in an S&M relationship. A lesbian couple involved in an S&M relationship. Very good stuff. It's really well written. Um, I think it originally started as the um, the artist and author. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher his name. It's a foreign name. Uh, Stefan Sajic. Um, he was publishing it. These sketches, originally just sketches of, um, you know, lewd and not quite pornographic, but lewd, definitely. Um, a lot of what they used to call cheesecake art, I think on his deviant art profile and obviously gradually the characters as he said started talking so then he had to write the story um he's mainly been publishing it through his own work on like deviant art but uh, then image comics got involved to publish it as a comic book as well so it was kind of a remastered thing and published through image comics and specifically top cow studios but they've very very good i rec i heartily recommend it to anyone um it's really well researched in terms of what it covers from an S&M standpoint. Um, and obviously there's some titillating aspects to some of the art, but the actual core of the story is this heart-rending, emotional, romantic drama. And I really enjoy it. Um, and again, that's perfectly justified. It's a, it's a story about sex. There's been several other tie-in comics, um, one of which is written by um, his wife, Linda Sajic, uh, one of which is written by one of her collaborators um, involving other couples within sort of like a connected universe, um, one of which is, is called Swing, so it is about a, a couple of swingers. Um, and obviously there's other sex comics. Um, the one I think of is Matt Fractions, I believe it is Sex Criminals, um, published by Image Comics. Two people find that when they have sex, everyone around them freezes. So they go on a crime spree, which I think is great. <laughs> now, obviously, stories such as these are very clearly designed with the sexual content as being a core part of the story or a core part of the characters. So it's very, very justified in terms of its content. And I think things that are able to justify the content work really, really well where I begin to take issue with it is where the um, the content may not necessarily be as justifiable. I'm going to explain what I mean. Um, a good example of this is in animation. Now, in the West, we have a specific view of animation as being almost something designed for children. Um, it's seen almost as like a lesser medium than live action. 
um, you can contrast this quite uh, explicitly with Japan. Um, Japan and other Eastern nations, but especially Japan, have a lot of comic books and animation of those comic books, so anime, designed purely for an adult audience. It's just seen as another medium of storytelling and not as a lesser medium of storytelling. Um, and I do think this, this trend in the West is changing slowly due to the influx of anime. But the anime influx started in sort of the 80s, so it's a slow-going process. You know, the West has had stories such as such as Akira and Ghost in the Shell for a very, very long time. Or Princess Mononoko, even, which has some uh, some graphic content as well. Now, yeah, in the West, though, America, animation especially is viewed as lesser. It's viewed as something for kids, especially. I think part of the reason for this is the prevalence of, again, Disney. Um, Disney and a lot of other animations tend, a lot of its animations are geared towards a child audience. Um, the Disney animated classics, for example, um, as they used to be called. I'm not sure if that's still their name anymore. Um, so that's your, your things like your P Pinocchio, all your Disney princess films, uh, Peter Pan, Winnie the Pooh, etc. They were all geared towards children. Um... It wasn't really until we got, say, Shrek uh, from DreamWorks that you had this idea of animation being something that was more all ages. Uh, but even then, that was all ages. It wasn't directly an adult-targeted thing. It was like, oh, Shrek has jokes for adults that kids won't get. It's still a kid's film. It was a film that parents would take their, their, their kids to see. But the idea of it being... Something that the the parents could get enjoyment of their own out of rather than just watching silently like they might do with, say, for example, some Disney films. They'd actually be something for them to have a chuckle at as well. Or cheeky chuckle. Um, even in television, things like The Simpsons is, again, that sort of all-age market. I, I understand in America, Simpsons is like a primetime show or an early evening show. And that's kind of how it was marketed over here for a long time. Um before streaming it was uh sort of you know six o'clock in the evening would be the simpsons um so it was like after your general kids tv but not quite late enough for the adult tv and uh, it was kind of a nice bridge that you could watch together but in the modern age we started to get a lot more of these adult targeted animations um now, some of the early ones were things like Futurama by Matt Groening, same guys, and a lot of the other guys behind The Simpsons. Um, Futurama is generally aimed to a more... Uh, less of a child audience, shall we say, than um, Simpsons. There's a lot more adult content, um, a lot more innuendo, um, a lot more sexual references. Um, again, nothing really... Violence. I think the vi I don't think there's anything in Futurama that's more violent than, for example, the Treehouse of Horror specials with The Simpsons. Um, but it's definitely aimed to a more adult audience in regard of its more sexual content. Like I said, the innuendos, the sexual references, um, and things like the alcohol consumption. Although saying that, uh, 
Homer and Barney and several other characters do drink alcohol quite a lot. Um, you then got, in sort of the early 2000s, Family Guy, uh, South Park, um, which became more adult-focused animations. Uh, Family Guy still sort of marketed towards the, the older teen, uh, early 20s age bracket. Um, South Park similar, but South Park's very definitely a more adult-aimed show. Um... And they do their thing, definitely. They, they do their thing. There's, uh, again, good exploration of sexual content, uh, graphic content, violent content. It's done well. I'm, I am I can quite easily watch any of these shows very happily, or any of the Seth MacFarlane shows. South Park I still quite like. I think there's a lot of very good stuff that South Park comes up with. Um, and I'm completely fine with that. The thing is, then, that creates, in the West, like, a genre of adult animation. Um, and it is designed in a very particular way from children's and all-ages animation. Um, and that leads to the sort of view that adult animation has to be like those shows. It has to push the envelope in terms of sexual content, violent content, um, you know, the, the joking nature of it, the parody aspect to be an adult show, you can't have, um, you know, it has it has to push the envelope to be an specifically adult oriented show to get adults to watch it. It can't be an all ages thing, and this is then leads me on to the more geek related of sort of these sort of shows, um, Rick and Morty. Now. Rick and Morty is a great show. I think it's very well done. I think the characters are brilliantly complex. Um, the character of Rick Sanchez is despicable and loathsome, but at the same time, very sympathetic. Um, I haven't caught up with the latest season yet, season five. I, I'm i not sure if it is available over here yet on streaming. I haven't seen it, if it is. Um, I'll probably wait until it comes to Netflix, unless it's on Channel 4. Um, but I know season five is in America and it's making some people very happy and some people very unhappy. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, but this is the perfect example. Rick and Morty has a lot of very surreal humor, um, but a lot of very explicitly adult humor. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think the character of Rick does lend himself to it. Um, but that has led to an influence that a lot of other shows have to follow in that same that same build, that same footstep, similar sort of animation style. The animation style of Rick and Morty is very clearly being felt in other shows, a lot of other adult shows especially. Um, even, for example, Star Trek Lower Decks, um, which is the, the latest animated Star Trek show, has a very Rick and Morty tune feel to it. Um, despite that being a very, very good example of an adult, well, an, more of an all ages, but very clearly designed for, uh, you know, this is a Star Trek show. It, it's no different, really, to any other Star Trek show, except it's animated. <laughs> That's literally the only difference. But it does have similar sort of humour, not quite as adult orientated as the stuff in Rick and Morty, but um definitely some more 
some more violence than your standard Star Trek. Um, one of the very early episodes of Lower Decks features a zombie plague on the ship, for example. Um, so there's a lot of, not blood, because it's done as black fluid, um, but kind of more graphic um, depictions of violence, shall we say, than what you might get in, say, a live-action Star Trek. Um, another show that I think is influenced by Rick and Morty, and I think possibly to its detriment, is a show called Final Space. Now, if you haven't seen Final Space, I can heartily recommend the first season at the very least. I have yet to see the second and third seasons. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if the third season is out yet. Um, but I've yet to see any of the second season beyond the first episode. Um, and part of the reason is the humour in it. I think I'm just generally not a fan of the comedian who's done the work. But I think the story for Final Space is very, very well done. And I like the characters. I like the 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 music in it. I think the music in it is fantastic. There's a lot of very emotional pieces of music. I've never been so heartbroken at some of the scenes in it uh, as I have at some other shows. There is, there's one episode of Final Space about halfway through the season. The ending of it tore me up. <laughs> I, I was crying um, and not just crying I was full on blubbing um, so yeah Final Space is a very very good show um, it has a, a little mascot character uh, named Mooncake um, my wife actually made me uh, a Mooncake plush uh, for my birthday last year the, the other year when whenever it was I was watching it but the humour is is it has elements that uh, remind me of Rick and Morty, but in sort of a a trying hard to be that way kind of thing. Trying kind of trying to be trying to be Family Guy and trying to be Rick and Morty, but not getting either of them right, and so coming off as a real pale imitation of both. So your mileage may vary on that. I know I'm not the only person who dislikes the humour in it. But the rest of the show is amazing, and I would heartily recommend it as a great science fiction story. But I think you'd, I think without that humor, I think that show would be a lot better than what it actually is. Which is a shame, because like I said, I do like it. It's very well done, it's very touching, very emotional. The voice cast is superb. Um,. The villain, voiced by David Tennant, is very, he's terrifying. <laughs> very, very terrifying. Um, but, yeah, the main character is like a... Yeah. The main character of Gary is almost like a grown-up Morty in some respects. Except somehow even less efficient than you would imagine Morty to be. Because Morty's proven himself very capable in several episodes of Rick and Morty. But I feel like this this graphic adult content and the 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 humour that comes with those shows is almost like a necessary part of adult animation in the West. For animation to be taken seriously by adults, it has to be 
in that vein, in a similar way to Rick and Morty, South Park, Family Guy. And I don't think it should be. And I'll tell you why. I think some of the best animated things that we've seen recently um, in the West have been, uh, especially as nerd properties, you know, sort of things that we might be interested in as comic readers, superhero fans, science fiction fans. Star Trek Lower Decks is, is brilliant. I, I do think some of the humour is perhaps unnecessary, but it is almost a more subversive take on Star Trek. And I think if you're a Star Trek fan, you will love that humour because it pokes fun at Star Trek and it does it very, very well. Um, the, the Teen Titans show from the early 2000s, which is still beloved and a lot of fans are expecting a reboot off the back of the last movie that they did with Teen Titans Go. Um, that was brilliant. It had some very, very good writing, very good superhero story in terms of just taking what everyone loved from the comics and doing some stuff very playfully. Some stuff is very, very kid-friendly and very zany episodes. But there are some episodes that are dark. There's one episode where the villain Deathstroke, uh, who's only called Slade in the show um, due to uh, Cartoon Network, um, he basically tortures Robin for an episode um, to sort of make Robin his protege, or break him into becoming his protege, I should say. So then, in a later episode, Robin kind of has almost like a psychic break and is picturing Slade and the things that Slade did to him. Um, and it's very, very well done. It's really, really well done. Um, and it turns out it's it's all a hallucination. Slade isn't actually there. This is just inside Robin's head. Robin was, yeah, he had, like I said, he had a mental break. And I thought that was brilliantly done for a kid's show. Um, I've spoken already about the Justice League Unlimited series, which I know is very beloved and has some amazing, beautiful moments in it. Like, um, I've forgotten the name of the villain, but a child character uh, uh, is dying. And she knows she's dying. And Batman, the stoic Batman, sits on a swing with her while she while she dies. So that she's not alone. And it's like, that is some powerful stuff for a children's show. Or there's one where Superman is given another world to live in. He's still on Krypton. And he has a wife and a child. And then as the illusion breaks down and he realises that he has to go back to the real world and that none of this is real. And his child is upset. And he consoles. He has to console his child that he knows isn't real. But still, this is a child who's scared and is looking to his father for help. It's very, very well done. Um, and obviously that built on the, the, the background of the Batman animated series that came before it. Um, the Batman animated series, again, has some brilliant, brilliant content. And, you know, it was a show that drew in a large fan base of adults at the time, even in the 90s. Older kids and adults who watched this with young children because it was good and it was really good. 
Um, you know, again, Batman had a, a spin-off movie. It had a spin-off series, Batman Beyond. And there was a spin-off film for that featuring the return of the Joker. Um, that was what was always called Return of the Joker. And Return of the Joker itself has some very graphic moments in it for a kid's show where we see the death of the original Joker before the new Joker has arrived in this far-flung future. And, you know, the Joker kills several people. You know, at one point he's firing a satellite laser through the city and we see the city going up in smoke and explosions. So we know thousands of people are probably dead. Um, but unlike Invincible, where an alien invasion happens in the second episode and we see people being killed and the, the graphic violence of it, we know people are dying in this, The Return of the Joker, but we aren't. We don't see it at the ground level. <sighs> where we do in Invincible. And I'm not sure I think I like how Return of the Joker did it better. In that we knew a lot of people were dying, as especially as an adult, but a kid could still watch that and just see a whole load of buildings blow up. Maybe not make the mental connection that there's people inside them. I don't know, that brings me back to Power Rangers, how Power Rangers always used to say its battles were happening in an abandoned building district. Um, so that kids weren't seeing buildings being destroyed full of people. Um, but in the, the Japanese Super Sentai, it's like, nope, they're just fighting in downtown Tokyo. So if a building gets destroyed, yeah, there's probably people in it. <laughs> different different ways of doing things. But, so yeah, that, that, that is an example of things that are designed for children, but can draw in an adult audience because of how good they are at, at just being even-handed and creating an all-ages experience. And I think more properties should do that. Um, so I've spoken about Teen Titans, um, Batman, Justice League, uh, more other good examples. Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, Avatar The Last Airbender had uh, a, almost a resurgence last year um, due to the COVID outbreak. A lot of people were going back and rewatching that because it had recently been added to Netflix. Um, that's where I started watching it for the first time. I missed it the first time round. Um, and it's amazing. It's it's really, really well done. It's very clearly designed as a cartoon for children to be able to watch, but also for adults to be able to watch. There's some very almost mature themes. I think um, the last episode I watched, I haven't finished it yet. Um, but I, I didn't have time last year to binge it, unfortunately. Time or mental fortitude. Um but one of the last episodes I saw was um, Tales of Ba Sing Se, which was a beautiful episode showing like vignettes of all the different characters and the vignette of Uncle Iroh, especially. Um, again, had me in tears. It was brilliantly done. Um, another one we got last year, or was it possibly the year before? Um, was the Clone Wars. Star Wars The Clone Wars, again, was another one that was designed for kids to watch along to, but drew in an older audience because of how good it was. I mean, part of it was the fact it was Star Wars, but it also drew in an older... Or I remember seeing the original Clone Wars series. I mean, I was a young adult, but I watched the original Clone Wars series. I watched the original Clone Wars film when that came out in the cinemas. 
I quite enjoyed it. Um, but the series especially is phenomenal. Really, really well done. There's some brilliant storytelling in it. And the producer of it, Dave Filoni, he then went on to make Rebels, which is far more focused towards a younger audience than Clone Wars is. Um, but still has some more mature themes running through it. Um, and he's now working on The Mandalorian, as well as several other series for Disney. So he's almost been given the keys to the kingdom, as it were. Uh, the Bad Batch is his latest show, which, again, I need to catch up on. But um, from what I've seen of it, again, very mature themes, very mature storytelling for an all-ages... To, to create a truly all-ages product. Um, the Marvel films, again, are a perfect example of all-ages. Um, but that does lead some people to dismiss them as sort of childish. Um, so you get... People um, who try and create things in opposition to that, which are already covered with like Invincible and uh, the boys with the more superhero subversions. But then you also got what Fox did with Deadpool and Logan and now Sony is doing with the second Venom film, which is trying to make more adult focused superhero stuff for the big screen. Um, and DC tried this as well in the early days of the DC Extended Universe by going for a sort of a darker tone to it, um, exemplified by the Snyder Cut and the recent Suicide Squad. The recent Suicide Squad apparently, though, has the graphic violence, but also keeps the um, the more adventurous, light-hearted tone, from what I've heard. So that's a good thing. I think you can still... It doesn't have to be dark and gritty, while being adult. You can have stupid things be adult. As exemplified by like Family Guy and Rick and Morty. Um, so I'm glad that DC's done that. Um, the character of Deadpool and Logan. They are characters that work in an all ages setting. They have done in the comics for years. Um, do they necessarily need to swear in their series. And indulge in graphic violence. Maybe not. Um, but Logan... I think is probably the best Western I've ever seen. Um, because yes, it is a Western. <laughs> in terms of if in terms of Western tropes, it fits all of them, trust me, it's a Western. There's a reason Shane is so prominent in the film. Um And Deadpool I mean that I had flaws with the second Deadpool film. I think the first one is much better. It doesn't fridge the main female lead for starters. Um and again, yeah, there is violence and swearing and sexual content in there. But I do think it all serves the story. <sighs> Could you edit it out? Maybe. I mean, they did try an edited version of Deadpool 2. But from what I've seen, it's basically just sense the swear words, as I did earlier. Um, purely because I think that's funny. <laughs> that's the only reason I did it earlier on. Um, but yeah, censor the swear words and cut some of the more gratuitous violence and gore. Okay, it doesn't really change the film much. Um, you know, I'm reminded of uh, when I saw an alternate take of one of the scenes from um, Shaun of the Dead. They produced a, a version free of swearing that could be shown on like airlines for example, and there's one prominent scene where the F word is used a lot. Uh, 
so they replace it with the word funk. Uh, um, so there's a, a funking tirade going on, and it's it's very clever. It's very funny, and I think that's a more inventive and more ingenious way of doing it than just using sensor beeps. As funny as sensor beeps are, I do think sensor beeps are funny. Seriously, any game that gives me the option to censor the language and replace it with beeps, I will take it. <laughs> so yeah, I think it is possible for animation especially to do an all-ages thing. And my favourite example, which I haven't talked about yet, it's just come back to me. My favourite example of an all-ages animated product is Enter the Spider-Verse, um, or Into the Spider-Verse which was the Spider-Man animated movie from a couple of years ago. It was done by uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the people behind the Lego movie, which again is an awesome all-ages movie. Um, and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is, again, more kid-focused, but there is some all-ages content in there as well. It's very, very funny, especially the second one, uh, which I think was a bit underrated when it came out. Um, and... Yeah, Into the Spider-Verse is, is very, very good. It's longer than most of your standard animated films at two hours. Most standard animations, especially by Disney, are sort of the 90-minute mark. This is two hours. And it tells its story very, very well. Um, I mean, Spider-Man dies. A, a version of Spider-Man dies. And then you get the, the alternate reality Spider-Man and... One of whom is very clearly going through a midlife crisis, um, you know, and a divorce. And it's all done very, very well and told brilliantly. The animation is perfect. It won an Oscar. It, that's how good it was. Um, you know, the script is is perfect. The, the animation is beautiful. There's, there's multiple different animation styles used throughout it. And animated techniques that make it very comic booky and pulp, uh, and it's uh, very pop art. It's it's very very good. I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, and it's getting a sequel, and I'm really looking forward to the sequel. I mean, the first one didn't do brilliantly on cinemas. I think it's definitely done better via word of mouth and people seeing it in the home video setting. And I'm so glad the sequel is getting made because I think it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Uh, Pixar is another one for good examples of just good all-ages content. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that uh, films like... Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, you, could, you can definitely argue that films like Inside Out, um, Brave, Toy Story... Uh, Finding Nemo, that they are for kids. They are definitely kids' films. But there is some brilliant all-ages theming that goes through that. There is stuff in there that adults can relate to easily. Um, you know, it's very, very rare that you get um, all dry eyes in a Pixar film. Um, another comic book-based one that Disney did wasn't Pixar, surprisingly. I thought it was at the time, but it wasn't. Um, was Big Hero 6, again, another very underrated film based on a Marvel comic. And Big Hero 6 is brilliantly done. Um, like Inside Out by Pixar, it covers sort of mental health topics. Um, 
very, very well. And it's just a good idea, a good way of doing an all ages product. And I do think more things should be designed for an all ages audience. I think we're moving towards a trend now of, I mean, there, there does still seem to be a trend that live action is better. For example, Avatar The Last Airbender is getting a live action adaptation soon. Which I'm not sure how we feel about. Um, the last one didn't do particularly well. Um, so it's like, oh, it was good enough. It was good as a cartoon, but we have to make it better by making it live action. And I think the idea of animation being viewed as a lesser medium rather than just another medium is unnecessary. Animation can be used to tell any type of story. Why are we only aiming those stories towards children? Why aren't we doing stories to adults that tell not even graphic stories, just dramas? Think about any film, any drama that you can think of. Because that I mean, there's a ten, there's a tendency towards um, pushing the envelope with more sexual content and violent content in television. Anyway, I mean, look at something like Game of Thrones, um, which was I think barely any female characters remain clothed throughout the entirety of that show. Uh, there's plenty of violence in it as well. Um, but you can have all ages products, and they can be brilliant and they can stand on their own merit and i think more things should be all ages i mean there, there is a growing trend where people are asking should more properties have adult content like should we see an r-rated lord of the rings product r-rated as the shorthand for adult rated for my european and british chums um, based on the American rating system that's used for adult films over there. Um, you know, should we get an adult Marvel property, an adult Lord of the Rings, an adult Star Wars property, an adult Harry Potter property? And it's like, yes, you could. But do you need to? And I don't think we need to. I think some things can be all ages. And some animations can be all ages without having to be adapted into live action to be taken more seriously by an adult audience. I think we need to remove the idea that animation is a lesser medium. I think we need to remove the idea that all adult content should have adult material. I mean, it can. But it doesn't necessarily have to. Adults. You can define adult media by adult themes. Themes that adults will relate to. You can have stories about characters having. Um, you know affairs or. Being involved in graphic plots or military stories. 
without us necessarily seeing the sex and violence that goes along with such things. You know? I think it will depend how things go. I Hopefully, the, the sort of... The way some animation is being championed now, things like The Bad Batch, things like... Um, Star Trek Lower Decks. I think they're definitely setting the tone that you can do more all-ages animation. And I think things like Spider-Verse as well is also doing that for films. I think we can have animated films that, you know, can be enjoyed by adults as well as children. Um, and perhaps even marketed towards adults. I think it's completely possible to have adult films marketed towards adults without them having adult, quote-unquote, adult content. Um, but yeah, I just think in a, a push for things to be seen as grown up, they're having, especially in animation, animation and comics, to be seen as grown up, to be seen as for adults. They're definitely in this push to be graphic I don't think it's necessary so thank you for listening to me uh, ramble once again um, hopefully I've given you something to think about and if you'd like to reach out and discuss those thoughts with me your thoughts on animation, adult content graphic media um, depictions of sex, violence, swearing, etc. Anything, absolutely anything. Then please feel free to reach out to me at the usual places. So I just thought I'd give before I discuss, uh, before I reveal what the next episode of the podcast is going to be about. I thought I'd discuss some of my thoughts on Quickfire, on uh, the latest geek products. Um, as you may have noticed by my discussion of it, I have yet to see the new Suicide Squad I'm hearing good things and I'm excited to see it so I may possibly discuss a little bit of that in the outro for the next episode um, I have also seen the first episode of What If and I have issues with it um, but I don't think they stop it from being enjoyable so I do recommend it um, like most people, I'm also very excited for what's next in the MCU, which is the Shang-Chi film. So hopefully the uh, pandemic relaxes a bit, enough that I can go see that in the cinema, because it looks like that's skipping the Premier Access release. Beyond that... Beyond that, I don't think I've seen anything. There's much else to talk about. I'm excited for Star Trek Lower Decks. I haven't seen the first episode yet. That's out today. Here in the UK, so I will be watching that probably after this, um, after I finish recording this. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have Star Trek back on screen. So hopefully, we'll be getting some good stuff in the next a lot of Star Trek related content. There's some other good science fiction films out at the minute that look very interesting. The the one with Hugh Jackman, I think, is it. Uh, Remembrance looks quite interesting so I want to see another trailer before I decide whether it is one for me or if I might wait until it comes out on home media um, 
and the new June trailer looks fantastic, so I'm very much looking forward to see that. Although I have noticed again that Baron Harkonnen is fat and in a flight harness, um, which seems to be something that they've kept from the original Dune film. Dune film. I keep saying Dune when I meant to say Dune, and I know obviously that's not true in the books, but we'll see. I'm hoping the film's long enough to do the plot justice. Um, because yeah, June's quite good. Anyway, the next episode of the podcast is going to be uh, something I've been wanting to discuss for a while, which is gatekeeping in geek culture. Um, again, I'll be focusing more on uh, comic books and TV shows, but we will be discussing uh, diversity as well, uh, and the representation of said diversity, and how it seems to anger certain certain members of these fan bases up in all the wrong ways or all the right ways because then they out themselves as people we no longer have to deal with so hopefully you'll join me for that one i might possibly be doing part of the next episode uh with a co-host so that'd be interesting that'd be my first episode with a co-host uh not sure it'll become a regular thing but perhaps a semi-regular thing um I've then got two more episodes, I think, of the current season um, before something else I have planned uh, in October, uh, which is going to be a bit more unique. Um, so, yeah, join me in two weeks from today for episode four of season two Gatekeeping and Geek Culture. See you then. Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then, as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me. And until next time, take care of yourselves. <laughs>